She went where? Holodeck 3, sir. I didn't think there was anything wrong with her seeing the file. No, of course not. Nothing at all! I'm, I'm with you every day, Jordy. Every time you look at this engine, you're looking at me. Every time you touch it, it's me. It's me. Computer freeze program. Now, I understand. Welcome to Trekno Babble Psychobabble, where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and titty tra- booby trap. God. It's your turn. <laughs> I said my thing. Oh, I thought you stopped halfway through. No. <laughs> that was the joke. Okay, all right, all right here we go. <sighs> And I'm Elizabeth, holographic projection and student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I spend some time with the Enterprise D's chief engineer, Jordy LaForge, and discuss the unfortunate depiction of his love life or lack thereof. Booby Trap aired in 1989 during TNG's third season. It was written by Michael Wagner and Ron Roman and directed by Gabriel Beaumont. The Enterprise finds an ancient Promelian ship emitting a distress call. The crew, especially Picard, are impressed by the Promelian's technology and evident stoicism. I'm sorry, Captain. It's just a rare pleasure to see this side of your personality. As the crew collect logs and artifacts, they find themselves ensnared in the same technobabble trap that originally doomed the Promelian vessel. The trap keeps the Enterprise unable to use engines to escape the area, drains energy from the shields and power reactors, and will lethally expose the crew to radiation before long. Meanwhile, Geordi LaForge is having a hard time with women. He has a miserable date on the holodeck and laments to Guinan his seeming lack of charisma. I just don't get it, Guinan. I can field strip a fusion reactor. I can realign a power transfer tunnel. Why can't I make anything work with a woman like Christy? doing fine with me you're different no you're different but i'm not trying now that's my point the enterprise's current predicament provides an unlikely outlet for his frustration however Jordy needs to analyze the enterprise's key components from the design level and so recreates the utopia planitia shipyards where she was built on the holodeck the computer intuits Jordy's immediate needs in more ways than one by creating a facsimile of the chief designer, Dr. Leah Brahms. To facilitate workflow, probably, Jordy has the computer imbue the holographic avatar with Brahms' personality traits from public record. Systems L452 through L575 will accept reactants, providing all other systems are calibrated to an equal factor. Computer, do you have any, you know, personality on file for Dr. Brahms? Jordy, it's me, Leah. Don't start calling me Dr. Brahms or I'll call you Commander LaForge. Don't do that. I'm sorry, I thought it would feel good. I don't want to feel that good right now. 
The holographic Brahms in the forge have real chemistry, and thankfully for the enterprise, this chemistry yields tangible results for their predicament. Their, or rather his, recommendation to Picard is to hand over navigational control to the computer, which, in some but not all simulations, manages to get them out. Picard struggles with this prospect, but gives his engineer the latitude he needs to find an alternate solution, which he does. The answer lies in our own computer, the mind, the best piece of engineering we'll ever need. One blast of everything we've got left for a microsecond to beat the inertia, and then we shut it all down, except for minimal life support and two thrusters. The crew need to turn all their technology off and rely exclusively on human intuition, instinct, and the will to survive. Picard takes to this alternative and mans the con himself. This plan succeeds, and Picard orders the relic and the trap destroyed. Geordi takes this lesson to heart, but not before stealing a much-desired kiss with hollow Brahms. Uh, so first... Thing. I don't know if you noticed this, Elizabeth, the little, um, this is so stupid, <laughs> but the, uh, the little violin, um, piece, did you recognize it that there, uh, Jordy has played? Isn't it a Brahms piece? It's, it's a Brahms Hungarian dance. Cause it's yeah. like later on in the, in the follow-up episode to this, he has some Brahms playing as one of his music alternatives for their date. Oh, I got it. Uh, some Brahms, uh, a piano at two. That's a, that's too corny. Which I think is a reference. I bet to this. everybody <laughs> does that. Yeah. Well, if you had a famous last name like that, I bet you would too. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And, or if you're, and if you're a musical nerd. And if you're a music nerd, like, like we, we are. are, like we are. Yeah. Um, okay. I have, I have some thoughts. Uh, I'd love to hear <laughs> um, what you thought about this episode. Well, I think the creepiest line award in this episode actually goes to the holographic Leah Brahms. You know, at the end, she's like, whenever you're touching the engine, you're touching me. And I'm like, A, what a what a guy fantasy. And two, cringe. What? <laughs> yeah, there is. Well, first of all, the Enterprise computer sure is um, intuitive. You remember the episode, I'm going to get this wrong. One one zero zero one zero zero one, uh, with um, uh, Riker in the New Orleans holodeck simulation with Minuet. Do you remember yes, that from the first season? I do remember that. And yeah. the, you know, I mean, part of it's it's not worth going into now, but somehow it creates the perfect woman for him. I know you're a computer-generated image, but your smell. Your touch, the way you feel. Even the things you say and think seem so real. How far can this relationship go? I mean, how real are you? As real as you need me to be. Uh, And then in the second season, it creates uh, Moriarty, who I guess is coming back in season three of Picard, which is weird, but whatever. Um, And, uh, you know, intuits from Geordi's line. Computer. In the Holmesian style, create a mystery to confound data with an opponent who has the ability to defeat him. Create an adversary capable of defeating data. An answer to power, sir. Goes full just hog on just like, I'm going to make a lot of assumptions about <laughs> what you need from this character. So too with Dr. Brahms, is it? make a lot of leaps it's like yes of course your engineering consulting program needs to give you a back massage 
<laughs> and right, yeah, and just and and like smile at you coyly, mm-hmm. you know. It's just like there, yeah. There's a lot of things that are very convenient about the like version of Leah Brahms that the computer creates, you know. It and it's like, I, and I like the fact that you're calling a computer intuitive, which is a little subversive. And you can read into like how much of that is the computer versus the writers, you know. But like, it's a whole thing. Yeah. But um, it's really interesting how the computer makes her into something way more than she needs to be for this situation. And two, just how Jordy, I like, I think Jordy also influences that a little bit, you know, it's almost like, what does the computer think he needs? And that's what he, the computer gives him. So in a, in a way it's Jordy's fantasy that is creating, that is creating the holographic projection, which, um, doesn't just happen in sci-fi. Like, mm. real people do that in real situations all the time. Make people into what they need them to be, in other words? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. yeah. yeah. We are all the center of our own universes. That that much is very true. Main character. So besides Guinan's little chat with him, and I think Dr. Crusher has, like, a couple of lines related to the plot, um, this whole episode is very male gazy but not in the way we usually talk about that it's you know yes Brahms is certainly uh objectified in this particular way but that's not so much what I mean it's more like there's this sense that Jordy's particular problem of feeling like he can talk to computers he can talk to the engines he can um relate to this technology and Picard's uh parallel thing about like model airships I used to build them when I was a child. My God, and I bet I had a chameleon battle cruiser too. It is exactly as they left it, number one. In the bottle. The ship in the bottle, oh, good Lord. Didn't anybody here build ships in bottles when they were boys? I did not play with toys. I was never a boy. You know, number one, you miss something not playing with model ships. They were the source of imaginary voyages each holding a treasure of adventures, manning the earliest spacecraft, flying an aeroplane with only one propeller to keep you in the sky. Can you imagine that? Now the machines are flying us. And this idea of playing with toys, there's this very, you can call it stereotypical, but I think it's sincere, um, sense of like the, the male experience of life as uh, relationships with things and toys and games and computers, especially starting in the eighties, uh, yeah. ends up replacing or taking a, a superior position in some ways or with to uh, human relationships, especially in 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 Jordy's case with women. That's a really good point. I actually hadn't quite caught on to that until you mentioned it. I guess mm. I don't I don't live in in that perspective very often, but um. I think you're right. I think, well, human relationships are complicated because they're multidirectional, you know, like uh, the relationship Picard has with the bottle and the ship or the relationship that Jordy has with the computer, like that's just one directional, you know, mm-hmm. like the most of the time you can say the computer is kind of sophisticated and like does give back to Jordy what Jordy wants, but that's also very responsive versus the computer having like a will and want and desire of its own that might be counter to whatever Jordy or like the engineer wants. Um, yeah. And there's some, 
simplicity in that that I think some people like, but you also miss out on having a real relationship with another real person who, and it, it's not always easy. There's conflict. They like people can want different things. And if you're not used to navigating that kind of conflict, I can see why you'd just rather do it with a, you know, an animate object. Right. We had the ship, the computer, it doesn't actually need anything from you. you and, and that's the thing is like, yeah, before Jordy ends up, creating the avatar fully and imbuing it with personality and everything. He's talking to the computer, you know, to the disembodied major Barrett voice. Um, and he's very like direct. That's the visiting dignitary talk. What's the inside story off the record? Access denied. Personal logs are restricted. Great. Another woman who won't get personal with me on the holodeck. Computer. If you add data from all these sources, could you synthesize a true representation of Dr. Brahms? There would be a 9.37% margin of error in the interactive responses from the facsimile. I can live with that. He's vulnerable about his desires. I mean, they're not exactly what I would call admirable, but that's okay. You know, he's not on, he's not on display. He's not... Um, under pressure he's not like on a date and like everything has to be perfect nor is he like you know in a professional situation with his captain who like is judging him um yeah and it's interesting because you know what Guinan tries to tell him is just be yourself like just express your needs and people will respond or they won't but that's the risk you take and that's sort of what human relationships are as you say they're they go two ways and they're reciprocal um, but that just does not, if, if it, when, it, when it's with a real person, it just does not occur to Jordy to be that way. I mean, I certainly have been in relationships where I feel like I have to act a certain way, like in that relationship to get what I want. There's like a cont- kind of like self-contortionism or like chameleonism that can happen. And ultimately, I don't think that's ever successful, but we get a lot of messaging that says you have to be a certain way in certain kinds of relationships, in certain kinds of situations. And I think you're, I, you know, I can understand the, like, I need to act this certain way because otherwise I don't think I'll be able to have the kind of relationship I want. Like, I can understand that motivation as misguided as it is of like oh I need to be appealing and I need to you know like how can I be the version of myself that I think this person wants you know but if if that's what you present to somebody else you're not presenting your real self and it's impossible to have real intimacy and real vulnerability and that's the scary part like what if I actually show up as myself and they still don't want me Mm mm-hmm um, I'm going to ask you this probably a few times on this episode, so forgive me for putting you on the spot. Um, but I am a gay male, and I have a... I can relate to a, to a certain extent with Jordy here, but what I want to know is, um, in this particular case, the, the opening scene with Jordy in the holodeck with um, Kaplan, I think her name is, the, uh, the ensign mm-hmm. he's tr- trying to get together with. Obviously, it's a disaster um yeah but other than the fact that it's like a lot <laughs> you know the violin and the beach and all that i'm sorry i think i better go back but too chilly i could turn down the breeze no it's been a lovely program and yeah you're a terrific guy yeah 
I just don't feel that way about you. <sighs> yeah. If you were in that position, if someone, if Jordy or someone asked you on a date in the future and took you to this situation, like what, what for you is sort of lacking <laughs> or, or what is the problem with Jordy's approach to this from your perspective? It's ingenuine. It's a farce is the word that came to mind first mm. or like an act, you know, it's like, it's, um, maybe even a little love bomby. Do you know what that is? No. What's that? Um, it's, well, love bombing is when, uh, in a new relationship, like you, one partner just gives a, a ton of affection, a lot of gifts. Like, it's just like overwhelming you with affection and care and like all these things that you think you want. And in the real, in, in the real world, they kind of like ghost you after that, you know, it's like, it's kind of a manipulative thing. Um, but hmm. In in the case of this episode, I get the sense that, like, Jordy is doing everything he thinks he should do, but it's actually not coming from a really genuine place. And I think people can feel that. I think the ensign in this situation can feel that. I also, like, I, I think this episode is dated in more ways than one, but I think the, the character of the ensign is also showing, like, oh, it's hard for women to say no, you know, like, we're we're supposed to go along with things, you know, and... It's a little problematic, I think, also in the way, like, she's responding to Jordy. Like, I think, I think I would hope that women in that position would have called it a lot sooner, you know, rather than, like, going along but not really saying anything and cringing and being a little passive in their communication about, like, how much do I need to shut down before you realize that I really don't want to be here versus being really direct about, like, this isn't working for me. I'm sorry, you know. I see. So because he obviously went to all this effort, it's like she humors him up to a point, which yeah. isn't, isn't well, it doesn't do him any favors, right? It's like, yeah, maybe he put a lot of work in, but it's like, if it's not going anywhere, why draw it out anyway? It's not. Yeah. In addition to being passive and problematic, it's also not particularly kind to him. Later, Booby Trap received an unlikely sequel in Galaxy's Child, written by Thomas Cartosian and Maurice Hurley, and directed by Vinrish Colby. The episode aired as part of the fourth season in 1991. The Enterprise will be hosting a special guest, the real Leah Brahms. Given how well things went with her avatar, Geordi is elated at the prospect of meeting her and getting some action with a non-hologram for a change. We worked as one. I would start a sentence she'd finish it what i didn't think of she did it was okay i know it was just a holographic image but the computer was able to incorporate personality traits from her starfleet record Guinan is to hand again and tries her best to curb his expectations but quickly sees this isn't going to go the way he hopes you know jordy everybody falls in love with a fantasy every now and then uh, no no Guinan. see you've got it all wrong i'm not necessarily expecting anything romantic here it's just I know whatever. Leah Brahms and I are going to be good friends. And indeed, when he greets Brahms in the transporter room, she's not at all like her holographic counterpart. She's actually very hostile to Geordi since he's fouled up her engine designs over the past four years the Enterprise has been in space. Ouch. Geordi is used to rejection, however, and takes it on the chin, opting to try and smooth things over with her by giving her a tour of his changes. 
The results are, well, creepy, given he clearly has a history with her of which he isn't aware. Your hair, it's, uh, it's different. Different than a few hours ago? <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, it's different than I expected. Why would you need to see my personnel files? Standard procedure when guests come on board, protocol. If I seem to be somewhat unyielding in my views, it's because I care so very much about my work. Oh, I, I know. When it comes to my designs, my engines, especially the ones on the Enterprise, it's like they're your children. Yes. Despite the fact that she seems to share his predilection to be more comfortable with technology than other people, she gently rejects his romantic advances. He remains pretty undeterred until she drops the bomb that she's married, something the computer failed to account for, it seems, in its holographic depiction of her. The low point for Geordi, however, comes when Brahms stumbles across his old program of her and is, understandably, pissed the fuck off over being an unconsenting model for a holographic sex doll. It's not like that. I swear. I'm outraged by this. I have been invaded, violated. How dare you use me like this? How far did it go, anyway? Was it good for you? Amazingly, Geordi manages to frame this whole situation as her fault. I've shown you courtesy and respect and a hell of a lot of patience. Oh, no, 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 wait a minute. I'm guilty, okay? But not of what you think. Of something much worse. I'm guilty of a terrible crime, doctor. I offered you friendship. Yeah. Once again, there's a seemingly unrelated plot for the Enterprise to get itself up to. They've encountered a giant space-dwelling life form. Although Picard attempts a passive examination, the creature feels threatened, attacking the Enterprise. Picard is forced to fire on the creature, killing it. Picard is beside himself with regret. We're out here to explore. To make contact with other life forms. To establish peaceful relations, but not to interfere. And absolutely not to destroy. But there is at least some reconciliation to be found. It turns out the creature was very pregnant, and its offspring is still alive. Using the phasers, Dr. Crusher frees the infant from the corpse of its parent, but this leads to a secondary problem as the creature attaches itself to the Enterprise in search of energy. Brahms and Geordi have to team up again, sort of, to avert the crisis and save the ship, as well as deliver the infant to a suitable home. The pair share a laugh over a drink, and, again, amazingly, she apologizes to him for her behavior. I guess I came here with my own set of preconceptions about you. In at least one future timeline, she divorces her husband and remarries Geordi. Leah's got a few friends at Starfleet Medical. Word gets around. Well, my cooking may not be up to Leah's standards, but I can still make a decent cup of tea. The end. Yeah, this episode, like many in the beloved Star Trek universe, um, is so dated. Like, there's <laughs> no way this episode would be written today. Like, after the Me Too movement, there's no uh, way that perspective would get past, like, wh whoever approves whatever stories are told these days. Definitely not. I yeah. don't... I, I'm not fully sold on the idea that the only thing that makes this episode not work on that level is its datedness, because there are episodes of the original series, which are clearly dated in their attitudes towards women, that still hold, that still work. Like, yeah, the particular views of things are not what we would do feel today, but 
the chemistry is sincere and there's like the motivations make sense. I don't, I guess maybe, maybe I'm totally ignorant of the way people thought in the early 1990s, but I feel like even then the idea that like she clearly, the episode frames her, her stumbling on his holographic thing with her as like, she is in the right for being pissed off. Like totally. she feels violated and she is, and she's outraged is what she says. And he turns it around on her by making it about her not accepting his friendly advances, even though it's established he was only being friendly because he wanted to get in her pants because she didn't realize she was married. So there's nothing in the episode that actually justifies Jordy's perspective. It's just like him deflecting. I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah. how else you can see it that way, no matter when the episode is written. And yet she feels bad because his feelings matter more than hers. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you hit it. You hit it right there. I agree with you, but just to be devil's advocate for a second, there's like two different ways that you can view this episode, or at least view Jordy. One, I think, is like the really innocent way, where this really was a really a working collaboration, a working relationship. He had these ideas and fantasies and like innate attraction, but nothing ever happened. And so mm. if you really do just kind of accept that all of this really was above board with some problematic undertones, then I think the episode kind of works. Just like even though like the way Jordy deflects is problematic. Like that's still a problematic element even if you kind of take this really generous reading of like what's going on. The other way I can read this is, of course, there's something really gross going on. Like, early on in the episode, um, when Picard tells Jordy that um, Leia Brahms is coming. <laughs> Ooh, well, this is terrific. It is? <clears throat> well, I mean, I've studied her schematics for years. And I'm like, that's creepy. If you uh-huh. replace schematics with something else, it's Well, really and remember, creepy. we established that... Jordy kind of fell in love with the Enterprise through the avatar yeah. of Leah in the last episode. So that's, I don't think you have to read too far <laughs> to make that Yeah, connection. yeah. It wasn't really her he was falling in love with. It was the Enterprise being filtered through some version of her. But it was it, that wasn't what was behind it. Yeah. We, we, we want to be empathetic in all regards here. And I am, am, I am empathetic to Jordy despite being really frustrated with the way he's written in these kinds of stories. Yeah. Um, and to, with re- respect to what you say, like, yes, there is a difference between whether, you know, we saw him kiss Leah, the holographic Leah at the end of booby trap, which again, she's a hologram. Um, and people have sex with holograms all the time. That's one of the things they're there for, but she's a hologram of a real person who doesn't know she's being, you know, that's a whole other thing that's unfortunate. But there is a difference between it went that far and then he shut the program off and he's like, oh, went too far. Or it's been sitting in the databanks for a year and he's been going back there and who knows what he's doing on his yeah. off hours. Which, again, you know, Jordy has shown that when he's alone with um, the computer <laughs> instead of a person, he's much more vulnerable about his needs and I, I, I see what you mean, and I can definitely see it going either way. Um, but regardless, <laughs> the depiction of Jordy is unfortunate. I think the depiction of Leah is worse 
in some, yeah. it's like in order to make sure that Jordy, because Jordy's our point of view character, he's the main cast member, in order to try and bolster up his story so he seems like less of a creep somehow they turn her into like a shrew so you're the one who's fouled up my engine designs is that a criticism commander no of course not it's just a well-known fact there's theory and there's application you've charted a completely new swap out schedule for main components replacement you bet i simply determined my own schedule based on observation and experience is that going to be your only defense commander that same tired rhetoric out here in the field, we learn things you designers couldn't possibly understand. To be honest, people find me cold, cerebral, lacking in humor. Well, I try not to be that way. I'm sorry. I hope that I didn't put you to a lot of trouble, but I can't stay. You can't? I just don't think that it's appropriate. In the first episode, Booby Trap, you know, Leah was exactly what Jordy wanted. And then in Galaxy's Child, she's actually a lot more like Jordy than he likes. You know, she's huh. not great with people. She prefers machines over rural relationships. Like, they're actually more similar to each other in a way that makes him more frustrated with her. Do hmm. you see that? I didn't realize that. I think I think you can read it that way. Yeah, um, in Booby Trap, she's, she's given the shoulder rubs, she's given the pouty eyes, she's fulfilling the fantasy and i didn't even think about that yeah she's just as awkward as he is in real life yeah yeah they're actually very similar in that way and ultimately they do realize they do have a good working relationship and like that's how they're able to become friends in this story but but what you said earlier about the fact that like her point of view is completely dismissed so problematic it's less so that like jordy says I totally get it. This was really violating. I was in the wrong. I'm I'm, I'm really sorry. And you've been really mean to me. You know, he just goes with the second part. And it's almost like, oh yeah, somehow Leah was in the wrong for being upset with him. And yeah, no, no, that's not great. Her being cold justified him a year before they met doing, yeah. It's so weird. Um, So... I think we're on basically the same page with this episode, but I do want to ask because again, I I have compassion for Jordy. I have empathy for him. Yeah. And I think one unfortunate thing here is that I think sometimes the writers, you know, again, we're kind of seeing behind the veil a little bit in the way they're thinking. They write Jordy as a bit of a self-insertion character with respect, you know, there's this stereotype Get a life, will you, people? <laughs> uh, I, I, mean, I, I mean, for crying out loud, it's it's just a TV show. <laughs> I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. You, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. There was a point in time, it's hard to think about now, but when being a nerd wasn't really great, <laughs> it was kind of hard socially. Right. I love being a nerd. What I do hell? too. But that's the ah! 2020s. In the 1990s, yeah. being a nerd was really like, oh, you're going to get your ass kicked. That's why I didn't watch Star Trek for a really long time. I didn't want to be a nerd. Oh, I yeah. yeah, I was, I was, I knew there was no hope for me, so I, <laughs> I didn't even try. Um, anyway, so uh, there, there is some compassion that's meant to be extended to Jordy. 
and I, 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 I feel that and I hold it. Are you saying like Jordy is kind of a stand-in for the audience? Kind of, maybe for the okay. writers themselves, this idea that yeah. like, I can't, you remember in, in Booby Trap, it was like this, this kind of particular kind of male gaze where it's, I'm good with toys and games and tech, not so good with girls. Yeah. There's, there's that layer to it. Um, what I want to know is, given that, given that we are going to take Jordy for who he is and say, you know, he has this social anxiety and is hasn't yet learned how to be himself enough to be able to have successful relationships with uh, romantic relationships, at least. You know, you said in the Me Too era, this would never be written this way. What is a version yeah. of this story that could be written today that might work <laughs> in terms of not having Jordy be the, the creep? Are we assuming that the first episode still happened? Yeah. Okay. Because again, um, okay, let's assume it's the more innocent version of Booby Trap where... It went a little further than it should, but he didn't go all the way. Mm -hmm. All right. If Galaxy's Child was written today in a way that wasn't so cringeworthy, I think Jordy would have hopefully a slightly more self-awareness about the fact and and realized sooner that the version of Leah Brahms that he had in his head is not the same version as the real Leah Brahms. Um, he wouldn't have used information he already knew about her um, it, to, like, kind of manipulate their relationship. Leah, do you like Italian food? Like it. Wait till I make you my fungini. How about uh, my quarters? 1,900 hours? Maybe even have a bite to eat? I make a great fungili. I love fungili. <laughs> Is that right? For me, I think it really hinges on the on the scene in the holodeck when Jordy walks in and, and Leah has found the old program. And he just, like, he needs to be accountable, essentially. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know what? I'm so sorry. I really understand how this looks. And it's, I totally understand that you have, and you have every right to feel outraged and, and violated. And, you know, what happened here wasn't okay. To, like, just fully own up to that. Just let the real Leah Brahms have her outrage and not be talked out of it, you know? Or not be told, like, you actually don't understand. Like, that that to me is the problem. Or, like, w- one of the problems. Like, I would rewrite it so that, so that Leah's experience is validated. Because it's not really here, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. Like, she's kind of a cipher, uh, which is, is too bad. Because I, I think, I forget the actress's name, but... Um, I think that I think the two of them have good on screen chemistry. I think it could have yeah. been an interesting thing to have her come back in later seasons and have them be friends and just sort of she ha- he has this colleague and they have a little bit of a interesting history, but it's okay. And that would have been yeah. good for Jordy. Maybe when he dates someone else, she's there to like coach him and be a good right. friend to him. Like there's a lot of possibilities if they had bothered to if they weren't so afraid of how Jordy would come across. Um, that they turned her into like a, a, a cartoon <laughs> of, a, of, a, yeah. of an angry feminist or whatever, whatever was in their minds about like shifting the blame over to her. You know, with this episode, I was also thinking about like, who gets to tell the story? Like from whose point of view are these things told? You know, like, it, like this is a very extreme example, but like what if Harvey Weinstein got to tell a story where he was the good guy? 
Ooh. You know, right? Uh, right? Because okay. um, right. it, it's kind of like history is written by the victors. It, it's mm. that to me a little bit. It's like, I can totally see, like, there is a version of history and events from a perspective of people like Jordy where they are the good guys. You know, like, they were wronged, the other people didn't understand, and it's their experience that is held up at the end of the day you know it's like and they are they are somehow not blameless but like they're the victim in in that story and what if what if that episode was written from leah brahm's perspective Mm. it would be a really different story stories from other perspectives are being told more frequently today there's still a lot of work to do I, i think we're starting to realize that there's not just one story and one perspective that is hailed as like the ultimate this is the baseline of truth and everything is like a degree off from this baseline like we're really getting rid of that um and to me like this is just an example relatively benign still problematic of when only one person gets to sit gets to tell the story and other perspectives are not accounted for and we're getting better, and I love Star Trek, and I genuinely, like, I like Geordi, I love LeVar Burton, but this episode is, I think, pro- emblematic of a bigger problem about who gets to tell their story and who doesn't get to tell their side of things. Yeah, as you say that, it would have made a huge difference just to give Leah one scene, like, with Guinan, the two of them. Yeah. It would have been, you know... Two women talking about a guy, not great on the Bechdel, but at the very least, it would have been a chance for her to say, this is how I feel, not to him, but to a third party. Our final episode comes from the sixth season in 1993. Aquiel was written by Jerry Taylor and directed by Cliff Bowl. The Enterprise discovers an all-but-abandoned Federation subspace relay station with evidence pointing to murder, a missing shuttlecraft, a pile of organic residue, and a dog hiding in the ductwork. The remains appear to belong to a Lieutenant Aquiel Unari. While Crusher investigates the organic remains, Geordi remains on the relay and begins playing Aquiel's logs. As usual, there's a double-edged sword to his antics. On the one hand, he's being a weird creep again, this time falling for a dead girl through her personal logs. Logs accessed. Begin playback. Shiana, you always said I'd look great in a wig, so... Here it is. What do you think? Hmm? Definitely not you. But the logs also reveal information that aid the investigation, beginning with the reveal that there was a Klingon officer involved in the incident. Eventually, the local Klingon governor hauls Aquiel, who is clearly not dead, into the briefing room. She tells the room about how the other Starfleet officer, Rocha, attacked her before she was able to escape in the shuttle. But her memories are contradictory and incomplete. Anyway, Geordi is all too happy to reintroduce her to her dog, whom he's been sheltering, and wine and dine her in 10 forward. Things once again become awkward as he reveals he listened to her personal logs. My family lived in the same house for five generations. Mm. The one on the hill. How do you know about that? Uh, Well, to be honest, when we thought you were dead, I needed to review your logs and personal correspondence. Meanwhile, further investigation points to her story being fraudulent. 
she's now the chief suspect in the murder of Rocha. Given the fact that, well, he's Geordi, he is instinctively defensive of her in the face of the accusations. Now, wait a minute. We haven't even established this phaser as the murder weapon yet. And even at level 10, I don't see how it could have done the damage medical evidence says it did. The investigation continues, including complications regarding that Klingon officer and evidence that some sort of mimetic shape-shifting is involved. Unari and Morag, the Klingon, are suspected, one of them, of being a coalescent life form, mimicking a creature they had absorbed, abruptly ending Geordi's developing romance. But it turns out to have been the dog all along. Yeah, really. Jordy manages to vaporize the dog demon before it eats him, but his romantic prospects are permanently postponed with Aquiel because um, the episode is over. It's an appealing offer, but I think I'd rather get here on my own merits. <laughs> I don't know if it was clear to you, Elizabeth, but I, I, I don't like this episode. Uh, problematic, though, uh, Booby Trap and Galaxy's Child are in different ways to different degrees, they are way more entertaining, I have to say. So, sorry for making you sit through this one. It's one of the most boring episodes of Star Trek I can think of. I didn't mind it as much as I've minded other episodes. So, good. It wasn't that bad. Good. Yeah. Though, for this theme, I was like, why does this relate to Jordy being creepy? Oh, okay. He's like <laughs> watching videos of a woman he doesn't actually know. Um, he's getting to know somebody, or like he's learning about. He's learning things about someone without actually talking to them. And invasion of privacy that he ends up using for his own benefit. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I... D I okay. This is, the, this is the hard part. Like, he's so smart, right? He's such a smart person. Yeah. And he not only does he not know just logically, but he does hasn't learned yet that if... If you have creepily, so in this case, at the very least, there's like a justification for him having looked at these logs like he kind of had to in order to, because he thought she was dead, all this, right? You still don't like say, yeah, I know this about you. I know who your your sister is. I know about the wig. I know about you singing. Like, what what the hell is wrong with you? Just keep that to yourself, right? You don't have to say that. I was so angry in 10 forward when like, you know, she very appropriately Gets up and is angry because she feels violated. I tell my sister things I wouldn't tell anyone else. I guess I was feeling a little exposed. And instead of him say, starting with, I totally get how you feel. You know, like that was, you, that was really violating. I really understand. He get, he, he, instead of starting with that, he goes, You need to understand that we thought you'd been murdered. We needed information. You know, like, the way you feel is wrong. And I'm like, no, that's like interpersonal communication 101. And you don't she apologizes again. The woman apologizes to him for him being a creep. I'm sorry. It's not great. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I shouldn't have been so, I shouldn't have been so defensive. Like, what? No, I know. And it's this thing where it's like he... We keep seeing this with Jordy, where he is alone and has an image of a woman on a screen or in the log or on the holodeck or whatever, and like is instantly like attached to her. Aquiel is sort of a microcosm of the other two episodes in that respect, where we get the first half is this idea idea of her, and then she shows up for real, and he interacts with the real version of her. Um, 
But in some ways it's worse because she is like into it. <laughs> like she reciprocates his feelings for, for some reason. I haven't been this close to someone in a long time. There's something I want to share with you. A way that we can become more intimate. My people are partially telepathic. We use something called the Kanar to help focus our thoughts. We also use the Kanar for a stronger emotional link during love. It's very weird. Um, and I don't, I don't love the idea that the lesson here for Jordy seems to be like, just stick with it. <laughs> just stick with your creepy <laughs> bullshit. And eventually someone will come along who's so traumatized that they will uh, reciprocate your feelings, at least for a little bit. It's not an accurate for how some people end up together, though. So I will say that. Ooh. Yeah, that's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> people end up together for so many different reasons. And... Unfortunately, a lot a lot of times it's for really problematic reasons. Like there's just a dysfunctional dynamic that is familiar between two people and that's why they end up together and they just recreate something that like isn't necessarily healthy or functional. But it's just they both know this this dysfunctional dance and then they see that the other person can fit into those patterns and then they just start going with it. Like once you start to see that, a lot of relationships are built around just, like, shared dysfunctionality. Um, and it's just like, oh, cool, you have a complementary issue to my to my problematic issue. Let's have babies. I'm like, no. <laughs> Fuck. Wolf. No. Uh, codependency, right? That's what that is? Codependency is a lot of different things. But essentially, it's when you change yourself so that um, but somebody else feels better. Or for somebody, so mm. that someone else's needs or emotional state matter more than yours, and you're gonna do whatever it takes for that other person to be in a better place. Um, is is and there's a lot of different ways that that can happen, and like a lot of different ways that looks, but I think it kind of boils down to that in the end. Um, but there can also just be, oh, you know, like my father was a narcissist, like not me personally, but like, oh, my father was a narcissist. So therefore I'm going to be really attracted to narcissistic men. And the mm. things that were really familiar to me in my, in, in my home where I grew up feel safe and familiar to me, even if they're actually dangerous, but because I am, it's familiar to me, things that are like that, I'm going to be attracted to. Mm -hmm. It can be that. Um, I think that, it's not a perfect encapsulation of what's going on here then. Um, but there is yeah. something, you know, Jordy, when Jordy in, um, in Booby Trap says to Guinan, I'd like to do that. Well, I take care of myself these days. <laughs> I mean, take care of somebody. He would like someone yeah. to look after, basically, uh, to rescue. And that says a lot about the way he views potential partners. I mean, you know... He gets really interested in Aquiel when he realizes she's got like weird shit trauma going on, bad dreams, and like he's like, "Oh, I I can be your knight in shining armor." We'll get through this. I promise you, okay? Then you believe me? Yes, I do. Some yeah. th that's sort of the thing that gets him going. It's not like. You know, the, the other aspects are incidental 
the 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 the, the, yeah. the music singing and the all the other stuff it's like oh i can be i can be the big the big man <laughs> the thing i don't usually get to be i guess um and that aspect of like rescuing and yeah. f- f- savings you know because he is attracted to people you know who are like him in that respect or a little awkward which is fine um it's that idea that he's some, maybe saving himself in a way by saving these women there's something to that i think yeah no um you really hit it on the head i think you know like there's a lot of relationships that are also like let me let me take care of you in like a, in a way that two adults don't really healthily shouldn't need to be taken care of in that way you know yeah speaking of some of the trauma that was revealed in aquiel's personal logs like you know when she's talking about how rocha would set her off and she would feel just like she did with her dad you know like to me that's a very clear indication of ptsd Mm. you know something happens that reminds me of this other traumatic thing that happens and my body reacts in the exact same way that it used to. Like that's, that's, that's trauma. That's kind of what trauma does. That's what triggering does. It's what P that's part of what PTSD is. Um, and so to me, that makes a lot of sense mm. that the way Rocha is acting makes her feel like this scared little girl and like the exact same thing's going to happen again. And I also find it interesting what happens later in the episode about the fact that she can't quite remember what happens after Rocha attacks her. All people have what's called a window of tolerance for like the amount of stress that we can kind of handle. Um, you know, it could be like studying for a test or like, you know, um, a minor car accident or you know, just like things that kind of like will raise the peak in our like stress level, essentially. We all have a window of tolerance where we can deal with that. But when something happens that exceeds that, like a major car accident or an earthquake or a tornado, you know, or a tornado or a violent altercation, when whatever it is, whatever happens that exceeds your window of tolerance, your experience of of reality fragments and you actually can't form memories in the same way that you could when you were within your window of tolerance. So it's kind of like you just hit tilt and everything goes batshit crazy. Um, Mm. Essentially is what happens in really, really traumatic, stressful events when you exceed your window of tolerance. And so when Aquiel says she can't remember what happens, that is actually what happens when you go through a really traumatic experience. You can't form memories in the way you can under normal circumstances. Mm -hmm. And a lot of trauma recovery is kind of piecing together your memories and and so like the whole like sci-fi explanation about like that remember when you said you felt like the memories had been drained right out of you well that's probably exactly what was going on then maybe i did take the phaser well whatever happened at least you got away before the process took hold didn't need to be there like there's actually a very real physiological psychological reason why someone wouldn't remember every single detail of a traumatic event that's so disappointing to hear i mean yeah not it, it, things are the way they are i just mean in terms of the episode was written because her memory loss which as you just explained is a perfectly reasonable thing to have happened both in what she thought happened where she got attacked by rocha or what did happen which is getting attacked by the the creature the mimetic creature yeah um 
that that trauma would lead to memory loss. That in and of itself would be fine. But her lack of a clear memory of the thing is what makes her a suspect in murder. It's like it's problematized to the point where it requires a sci-fi explanation to get her off the hook. Oh, that sucks. Yeah, it does suck. It's also historically accurate. I need to double check the timeline of it, but I think by the 90s, people knew what I was talking about. So I do think this episode is a little outdated Mm. just in that respect. But earlier in this sense, like it's relatively new information that people have started to acknowledge that during traumatic events, you can't remember things. Mm -hmm. Like it actually used to be, well, if this really happened, you would remember it. Like it's only in the, I think it's like within the past generation or two that we've actually established and accepted that during traumatic events, memories can't be formed in the normal way. And that's actually part of what defines whether it was traumatic or not was like, can you remember what happened? If you can't, there's probably a good, that's a good indication that something really bad happened. This is a subject I would love to come back to at some point. There's an episode of Voyager from what, five years after this called retrospect Mm -hmm. where uh, seven or nine is dealing with a similar thing. And it's very much about the idea of trauma and memory it's a divisive episode, and I'd love to circle back to this and, and, and cover that at some point in, in more depth with you, because that's great, fascinating and, and informative. It doesn't matter. Coven is guilty. Saren, there's no doubt in my mind that you believe what you're saying, but is it possible, just possible, that the memories you and the doctor recovered aren't accurate? You know that's not right. Tell them. Everything led me to believe that you were a victim. And we can't ignore the fact that this evidence supports Coven's story, and not yours. The doctor told me I would feel better when Coven gets what he deserves. I want him to be punished. I won't settle for anything less. As I alluded to in the Aquiel episode, we have a pattern with Jordy where he ends up forming what he perceives to be intimate bonds with women when there is a specific kind of distance um, where it's either with yeah. like a record of them or a holographic version of them or their logs or whatever. Um, and when he's confronted with real people, it tends to fall apart unless there's some other underwriting trauma going on. What this reminded me of presciently, because although this is taking place in the era before the blow up in social media is the concept of the parasocial relationship. Um, For those unfamiliar. Yeah. It's when you form attachments to people who are in some ways like celebrities or internet personalities, whatever people that you don't actually know, but you know them through the media, they choose to present and in real life of course people who are on social media or actors whatever famous people in some way whatever you're getting of them that you're forming bonds with is a curated portion of them and possibly an entirely fabricated version of them or a mixture of the two so it's not that it's wrong to have those feelings of course i mean feelings are not wrong but 
the idea that that kind of attachment is uh, comparable to having an actual relationship with the person you think you're attached to uh, is is a problem. And I think it's debilitating. And I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole right now, but, you know, stuff's in the news right now about, um, you know, Andrew Tate, that kind of thing. There's talk of, like, a crisis of masculinity. And as I mentioned, Jordy is coded as this kind of, you know, lonely male nerd. And there's something in here that speaks to me about this idea that when men are their socialization is being usurped by these parasocial relationships, particularly um, lack of intimate connections with real people, uh, it can develop problematic behavior. And majority, thankfully, yeah. the worst it gets is him getting creepy with Leah Brahms and with Aquiel. Not great, but it's certainly better than, you know, joining the men's rights movement or something. So, I don't know. <laughs> there is something... Despite the fact that we we have we have often commented how dated these episodes are, there is something really contemporary uh, in that yeah. aspect of Jordy here. Agreed. Like as much as they're dated, there's still some issues that are still contemporarily re- relevant for us. And if anything, it's like foreshadowing. Um, you know, you didn't mention this part of of social of contemporary social issues, but like there's the whole incel movement that's happening right now, which. Yeah. Jordy's like very far away from that, but there's like a tint of it in there and it's, it's scary and it's problematic. And it's like, how dare these women not be what I want? What's hard about that conversation is that, um, what it requires in my opinion is universal compassion. And that's hard. It's hard. I think when one is aware of the fact that, um, when this behavior leads to, uh, problematic behavior that's just sort of harassment or all the way until like actual assault rape like obviously and this is something that these episodes fuck up in their depictions like the real victim is not Jordy. the victim is these women who are being objectified pre- preyed, preyed upon objectified yeah preyed just sort upon. of sexualized objectified yeah, exactly um but there is still room i think even with that knowledge to have some compassion for the the Jordy, whatever the Jordy is in this in this analogy, um, because there you know it is unfortunate that he has these insecurities, and I think just saying well Jordy you know we titled this Jordy's a creep because he is, but he's the he's the creep who's your friend and you want to be better as opposed to saying yeah. well you're a problem, dismissed. <laughs> fuck off yeah. to, to the basement, you know? Yeah. So I, I want to respond to, to a couple points that I hear you, that I hear you saying. And one is this sense of the directionality of relationships and the actions that affect people. Um, I, I think a lot of people have this sense that like life is happening to them. And, and what we sometimes call that in, in like the psychological world is this like do or done to relationship. Like I am doing something to you or something is being done to me. And like, there's a little bit of passivity in that kind of relationship where like I have, and and like, you could also think of that as a little bit of like victim mentality of like, this thing is happening to me. And I have no agency. I have no control. There's nothing I can possibly do in response to what is happening to me. And so it feels very much like 
either this other person is imposing their will on on me or on you, or I'm imposing my will on you. And like, so there's that kind of one directionality in that way. And a lot of people experience their life like that. Um, but that is a, but ultimately it's an illusion. Like that dynamic is, is a false illusion and organize, organizing principle as to like what is actually happening between people, which is intersubjective. Um, you know, what I do causes a reaction in you, which then will cause a reaction. Then you will bounce that back to me. And it has this kind of like circular uh, effectiveness to it. A lot of people aren't either can't see that or aren't willing to acknowledge that. Like what I do has an impact on you that will inform how you respond to me. Like 100, that's actually what's going on 100% of the time, even if we think we're powerless in a certain dynamic. And the other thing I hear you saying is like the sense of like, there's this idea of like dependent origination, which is if someone does a terrible, horrible thing, that evil doesn't just exist separate from anything else. Um, like if someone, when you look at like the personal history of criminals or people who have done really, really terrible things if you go back far enough, there's honestly usually something terrible that happened to them. And so it's just like, it's just this harm that keeps getting perpetuated. And it's kind of preventing that original harm from happening that has that downriver effect. You know, like there, there's studies that have shown that like, if you can give a lot of early childhood interventions, especially in communities that are beset with like poverty and um, social injustice um and so i just wanted to like bring that in as we're talking about jordy who like how can you see them as a whole person with flaws who did something problematic but it might be tied into something that they were lacking and needing we have to remember like somewhere along the line something happened to these people that caused them to behave in in terrible ways well and that's the undergirding as far as i understand it that's the undergirding sort of not that it needs a justification but the, the justification for therapy is the idea that there's always room for improvement there's always a place you can go with whatever baggage you're, you're dragging around with you it's never just like well you're written off your yeah. problems are too much there's always somewhere to go even if maybe you're not going to go as far as other people would hope you would go mm-hmm. um and I think the two things you, you said are related to each other in terms of their their multi-directionality. You have multi-directionality of personal relationships where you you get some of what you what you put in, and that comes back to you, and that's important to always be aware of. But also this idea that that works temporally, mm-hmm. that um, you can your past informs your present, but you can <laughs> retroactively go back to your past and have sort of corrective behavior and, and therapy and um, uh, work through those issues so that your present then it changes and your perspective changes. I think that's good. It's something I hope, <laughs> you know, we're going to see Jordy in, um, in Picard and that show has been a massive disappointment. Who broke them into this too? Or... <laughs> we'll see if they, how he's depicted. <laughs> 
Tell me what you yeah. really think about Picard. <laughs> I really like LeVar Burton. Like as a as a as a celebratory persona, I really like his values. I love what he's doing with like reading Rainbow and education and just like like the kind of public persona that he, that person, that actor has put into the world, I really value. I think LeVar Burton is like a national treasure. Um, <laughs> so, and I'm really hopeful that this last season of Picard will be so good that it kind of redeems the whole series. And I'm really curious to see what LeVar Burton, what influence he's able to have over that character. And so, fingers crossed. Yeah. So, so we've been talking about how Jordy kind of creates these fantasies of these women before he actually gets to know them, like for who they really are. And, and there's a lot of problematic elements into like how and why that has happened in these particular episodes. But what Jordy's doing is actually something that like all of us do, which is we create this just ideal fantasy toward our romantic partners. Oh, you're like this. And, you know, when we feel just like that immediate attraction to somebody who we don't really know, often what is happening is, is, a, is a kind of projection. And it's a very specific kind of projection in, if you're taking a Jungian lens to it, which is that you're projecting your anima or your animus onto your romantic partner. Um, the idea is a little gendered. If you're a woman, you project your animus. If you're a man, you project your anima. But that's only in heterosexual relationships. And there's like a lot of like modern work that's being done now on like how does that work for homosexual relationships how does that work in like a non-binary term so things to look forward to but like historically it's kind of in this gendered heterosexual way so the idea is that for every single person you know like you elliot and me elizabeth like who we understand ourselves to be in the i sense of our identity you know, in like in the ego, in the what makes me an individual that is separate from everyone else. You know, what is what is uniquely me? So if you take that entity, that entity innately has its opposite, which is just the opposite of everything that you are. There's like a complementary other that is the mirror, but is also the opposite of who you understand yourself to be. When you add those two halves together, you get closer to the whole of your full psychic experience, which we are innately cut off from because we are individuals, you know, like, mm. and it's part of this kind of like mystical reunion is to like, if you can have a relationship with the other that is also you, you get a glimpse into a different experience of yourself, which is more related to how you connect to the rest of the universe. It's kind of like, it's, it's the lock and the key. And if you can find your lock or if you can find your key, it opens up this like mystical experience for you into a, a different sense of wholeness, into a different sense of self, into a different understanding of who you are. That other is the anima animus is what it's called. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a Latin word for soul, you know, and that other half, like, often we don't realize that, like, that's who we are. 
it's like the opposite. Again, like I think of myself as a woman and then the part of me that identifies as masculine, that identifies as all these other things, which I actually don't think I am, that's my animus. That's this, that's the other half of me that I don't realize is me. Which is why you seek it out? Which is why is we seek it, it out. We, which is okay. why we seek it out because we are pulled toward that sense of wholeness. We're, we're attracted to the things that we think we're lacking. We project that sense of idealized complementary other onto our romantic partners. Um, and so when you like, you know, see someone walk in a room and you're just like, oh, I'm love at first sight, you know, like there's always a hook. There's always a reason why they're able to take on that projection. It's not just like a blank slate, but you, we all, we just, we assume we know who that mm. person is in such a romantic, idealized way. And like, that's how most relationships start. You know, it's just like, who are you to me? Who am I to you? We like have these fantasies about each other. Not what you hope for, huh? Hope. Guinan, the woman only cares about her work, hates what I've done to her engines. And to top it all off, she's married. Maybe it was your old visor. You saw exactly what you wanted to see on the holodeck. Sure, the computer made it look like her, gave it personality. But when it came to the relationship, LaForge, you filled in the blanks. And you had a perfectly wonderful, marvelous little fantasy until the real Leia showed up and ruined it. Now, she's probably done the most horrific thing one person can do to another not live up to your expectations. I think I think I get know where you're coming from here in terms of how it relates to what you said earlier about when Jordy realizes that Leah is much more like him than the version of her that he saw in the holodeck, that's problem. <laughs> like it, it it messes up his whole conception about what they're going to be as a couple in his mind. Yeah, um, and, and, and when you think about Leah in the holodeck version of her, she was suave, she like knew ev- all the right things to say. Wasn't she kind of like what Jordy wished he was? Yeah, able yeah. to charm charm um, Kaplan and just have all the right moves. Yeah, because yeah, her they can't both be the nerd. <laughs> that doesn't work. Well, I, <laughs> um, it does, but yeah, it does. Yeah, well, like we we see we I think we see ourselves in our romantic partners, and we see who we in, in the fantasy we see who we want to be, and we also see who we are. And it's whether or not you like what you see. Now that you've met me, am I what you expected? Mm. Actually, I'm... I'm not sure. The woman I saw in those laws is very complicated. I think there's more to you than meets the eye, Lieutenant. Instead of giving the power away to somebody else to say, like, you give this to me and I can't have it without you, how can you actually kind of like take back that projection to be like, this is actually part of who I am and I'm, and I gave it to you and now I'm going to take it back. We all have these like lies we tell ourselves, these illusions about like who we are and who other people are and the kind of lives we have. And like, we kind of need that to soften the harshness of reality. I was afraid of a I am. 
it's one of the contradictions I think of being alive is that we all are trying to get as close to a sense of what is real as we can, but we can never fully get there. And we need our illusions to fill in the gaps. But at the same time, if we don't have those illusions, it's like worse. Lest anyone get the wrong idea, we are focusing on the episodes where Jordy is a creep. <laughs> um, but in addition to what you said about LeVar Burton being wonderful, Jordy is a wonderful character yeah. for the most part. Like there are lots of, we, we didn't touch on any of his. I was thinking about this when you're talking about like um, people having histories and family trauma that lead to their behaviors. Uh, you know, there's episodes dealing with, uh, there's a great episode where Jordy has like his mind uh, uh, brainwashed and we deal with his, um, he has something called identity crisis with his past and there's stuff with his mom in the the last season. There's lots of stuff with Jordy and especially his friendship with Data. Like he's great. We love Jordy. Um, Please don't take this episode as a condemnation of him as a character. Yeah. Or like as a monolith, like this is all he is. Exactly. Yeah. But when it came for, for reasons that we, we touched on about just maybe the, where the writers are coming from and some stereotyping, um, when it comes to Jordy and women, at least in the TNG proper series, uh, it's it's not great. <laughs> um, but still interesting to talk about and very insightful um, to get your thoughts as, as always, Elizabeth. Thank you for that. We are going to take a bit of a left turn uh, for next week and talk about non-monogamy Okay. Uh, in Star Trek. Yeah, we briefly mentioned something about this in our um, episode about parenting regarding uh, Troy and Riker and their history leading up to being an old married couple. So, so it's going to be fun to take a peek at that. Very cute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, see, Picard's not totally irredeemable. Right. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to that discussion. I think I think non-monogamy is becoming something people are more aware of, even if they don't understand it. And especially in Star Trek, which, you know, like, I'm really interested to see how they deal with this topic, you know, before it became slightly more mainstream or just like not completely rejected in its own right. So I'm excited for that. Yeah, it's going to be fun, fun yeah. chat. Uh, thank you to our listeners and patrons. Uh, please um, comment, like, subscribe, all that good stuff. We're always trying to grow the channel and reach new audiences. Uh, but anyway, until Namanagbe next week, Elizabeth, uh, thank you very much, and I'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>